1: We're live. This is the Chit Chat Money Investing Power Hour. We've got no Brett today. We instead have our uh, our substitute here, Jason Hall. He is one of the co-hosts of the Smattering podcast and frequent guest of the show at this point. Um, and I guess maybe I should give some context for the show for anyone that's tuning in for the first time. These are not drinking power hours. Um that Maybe. They can be people. That's your individual choice, <laughs> right? Um, but it's just one hour. Anything that's going on in the investing world, anything we want to discuss, we go live on YouTube at nine thirty Pacific time, twelve thirty Eastern time, and love to answer any questions people might have. I think that's about it. We got a newsletter and stuff. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, please give us a review. It always helps. Uh, but with that. Jason Hall, welcome to the Investing Power Hour. How's the uh, how's the morning been? How's your life and markets going?
0: Things are good. We're coming through earnings. We're going to talk about it here. A couple of tech companies reporting here, kind of at the end of the the quarter. So I got homework to do after after the show to really start digging into some of these companies. Things are things are good though in general. And Ryan, if it makes it easier for you, feel feel free to call me not Brett
1: not Brett. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: Either one. I'm here for you, buddy.
1: Um yeah, it's been uh it's been a little dry this week, but we do have some news. Um Jason, you mentioned a couple of things. We briefly talked about it last time, the Berkshire bought some home builder stocks. Um Brett and I are now, I would say baggies or bag holders when it comes to our real estate takes. We are just like we we hate the price of homes because we're non-homeowners and then every homeowner's like, yeah, you know, it's not going to crash. So we, uh, we right. have this, we have this running take that the home prices will crash right when we need to buy one. So, um, that's every the Every
0: non-homeowner but, that that feels FOMO feels the exact same way. I've, I've been there.
1: Yeah. I asked my, I was like, gosh, these home prices, like these homes are so expensive. And I was like talking with my family and my parents were like, yeah, I mean we were thinking the same thing 30 years ago when we bought our home. I'm like, oh yeah. That's <laughs> yep. No, we're not, I'm not the first one to think of it. Um, okay, but we're gonna talk home builders. You mentioned also some of the rating agencies are downgrading banks. Um that'll be fun to talk about. And then I've got a couple things here. ESPN, potentially rumors here for an Amazon Disney partnership. There's also Grayscale got approval for Bitcoin ETF which is kind of a win for the crypto industry. And then we can really talk about anything. We got our Mount Rushmore. We've been doing a Mount Rushmore theme. So I'm going through all of it, but
0: where do you want to start here, Jason?
1: Anything pop out to you?
0: Yeah, let's talk about, I just, I really think this is really interesting. I want to talk about the potential partnership between Disney and Amazon.
1: Okay, sorry, I was on mute there. All right, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it still feels like rumors, but we've got essentially something came out last week that said Amazon is in early talks with Disney about a potential ESPN streaming partnership. The there's also the rumor that they could Amazon could be purchasing a minority stake in ESPN. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, Iger has been pretty vocal uh, that they're looking for a partner with ESPN. He even said there was like this quote in an interview with CNBC where he's like, it's, you know, the real magic happens or the real, I guess, business prowess kind of comes when it comes into managing a business that's no longer growing, which is, he was really in like referencing ESPN. Um, And so it is kind of this interesting idea. Like right now they have ESPN plus, which feels like it's getting sort of just drowned out in the competition i don't know what this partnership would really look like in like its end state but the idea that whatever espn's content rights are potentially come to amazon prime video feels like i don't know for me it feels like a win for amazon it depends obviously how much they pay for it but what are your thoughts here? what do you think about the potential for Amazon Disney partnership? And then who do you think would benefit more?
0: Yeah. So after, after we, like, I think this is just like a really good thought exercise in general. So beyond just the idea of like how it could be good for an Amazon, you know, who would it be better for, but thinking about it from the perspective of, of Disney and like, what's really like Disney's core and like what's the real flywheel there and what's maybe not so much of the core anymore I think it's useful, but like, here's, here's kind of the way I've been thinking about this broadly because with, with ESPN, there's really, there's kind of two challenges, right? And they're tied to the same thing. And that's the changes with linear TV. Um, just, it feels like there's a lot of scrambling to figure out how to value sports content, you know, um, because if you're a network and you, know, I think for the CB CBS's, NBC's Fox's um, ABC's <laughs> two of those are part of, of the, of of, the, of, of Disney complex. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's, it's still really important, right? Because it does bring a lot of it. It's kind of the mini ecosystem, right? So it's still, it's still pretty important, but if you think about Disney's core business and the decline of linear TV, um, which of course cable is a big part of that, which is the major driver of ESPN because so many non-sports interested people have been subsidizing ESPN for the rest of us for, you have 30 years, basically, the the math is starting to change and it's becoming less and less um, important for ESPN as far as a profit driver and more important for ESPN to figure out how to recapture that, right? So um, for Disney, it's about making money from ESPN. For Amazon, Amazon wants to sell you diapers. They want to sell you electronics, right They want to sell you stuff and again, I'm thinking about Amazon outside of AWS right because you really have to think of it as a set two, two different businesses. That's all they want to do and, and they want that ecosystem to be as broad as, they, as it possibly can. And, and being the streamer to capture the most popular cohort of sports in the US would be immensely valuable to keep people on the platform, right People can be really dismissive of prime video. Um, because it has some good content. It doesn't have any of the great content. Um, and it feels free, right? So it feels like it's just a loss leader. And to a certain extent, that's kind of true. But bolting ESPN on um, to, to like an Amazon is like the modern cable package kind of thing could be enormously valuable to Amazon. At the same time, if the if the numbers make sense, it could be a huge win for Disney. Right. Because they're trying to find that other revenue that's not the declining cable companies. And something like Amazon could be at least part of at least part of that revenue picture.
1: Today's episode is presented by the science of hitting investment research service. The Science of Hitting was founded by Alex Morris, who spent a decade working as a buy side equities analyst before launching his own service in early 2021. You've heard him here on the show a number of times, but Alex produces really, really high quality equity research. And in addition, he provides 100% transparency into all his portfolio decision making. We were early subscribers to the Science of Hitting research service. And we genuinely believe that Alex produces research that is on- par with top wall street analysts at a fraction of the cost i mean the fact that you also get complete portfolio transparency and 100 accountability is just icing on the cake effectively you're outsourcing a full-time equities analyst role for just 349 dollars per year brett and i both pay for the service on our own and we can tell you that it's honestly worth the money some of the companies that alex covers includes microsoft netflix and meta roku costco match group Berkshire, tons of others. So if you're interested, check out the TSOH Investment Research Service today at the scienceofhitting.com.
0: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking
1: requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's interesting because ESPN still has, I would say it still has a ton of brand value, brand notoriety. Like people associate ESPN with the world of sports, uh, sports on like sports TV the first name that probably comes to mind is ESPN. Yep. But when it comes to sports streaming, it seems like over the last couple of years the market has proven that brand value really doesn't matter that much cuz it's whoever can pay the most for the content, like whoever can pay the most for the rights gets it. So, and people go where the sports are. They don't really go for, you know, what's his name? scott van pelt or whoever the espn hosts are nothing against scott van pelt but uh i mean when you've got and maybe i don't know if this is like a new concept but when you've got companies like google companies like apple just bidding ridiculous amounts or higher than espn can for these content packages it it feels like espn is kind of stuck in no man's land where they've got this valuable brand, but none of the valuable sports. Maybe they probably have some of the college football games here, but yeah, they're losing a lot of, maybe they'll have an NBA. Um, I think they still have the NBA deal, but I'm not 100% sure there. I don't know. It just, it feels like it's in this weird kind of limbo period for any of the companies that are straddling the line between streaming and cable. Mm-hmm. If you started on streaming and you're funded by another offering, whether that's Google with YouTube TV or Apple with Apple TV or Amazon with you know, Prime Video, yeah. you're in a better place, I think, than the ones that are having to transition.
0: Well, what you're, what you're measuring the success of a, a, a deal like this by is very different than if you're Disney, right? This is part of how you make money. And if you're, again, Amazon and you know, Apple the same way, I think Apple maybe looks at it a little bit differently than Amazon in in terms of like, it needs to be a profitable part of the whole, right? Um, But for for Amazon, it's really about that ecosystem of feeding the core. Like they want this to be part of the top of the funnel, right? And they want it to be as broad as possible. And, you know, if this is a way to get more sports fans um, that maybe aren't big Amazon shoppers to start participating more in that ecosystem, things get sticky. So, yeah, I think that's the key is how they value and what it's importance is is really really different.
1: Yeah, I am genuinely curious what the what do the economics look like for the Amazon Prime subscription? Because I think about okay, they're selling free shipping. I mean, the costs for shipping aren't really included in Prime, so that would make a high margin but because they're included somewhere else, but then they're subsidizing all these other services, like paying ridiculous amounts for content on Prime Video. There's no way they're making money on Prime video, but because it's a part of the subscription, maybe there's something there. Right. Um I'm trying to think of all the other stuff that's included there. I think you get like a year of free delivery on Grubhub. I think you get uh there's like a new medication subscription that's included there as well. I think it's like prime r x or something like that where it's an extra five dollars a month and you just get kind of your i can't remember but there's basically all these offerings within mm-hmm. uh that the prime expensive. subscription I, yeah and i think yeah. like all i can think is like they have to be hemorrhaging money on this but at the end of the day it's so many different benefits and you're still for the most part leveraging the spend of other divisions in your company that maybe the subscription is still profitable
0: here's here's the number this is the number that jumps out at me i'm thinking about how amazon versus a disney would think about this um amazon generated eight times as much operating cash flow as disney over the past over the past 12 months now disney of course is spending a ton of cash on streaming and stuff like that so that's not a perfect measure but like it hasn't even been close like how much more cash flow amazon kicks off than disney so and amazon has not been Necessarily in profitability
1: mode either. They've had their right. fair share fair share of troubles. Yeah. You know? Right. So
0: it, it's it's interesting. But I, the key to me is like thinking about how different organizations depend on what they're trying to build and trying to do will value these sorts of businesses differently based on what they're trying to build.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I 100 percent agree. It's just. I think the sports rights industry as a whole is just so fascinating because I've got no idea where it's going to go. And I can't help, but think that unless you sell something else. So unless you have iPhones as your primary business, or you're trying to lock in like a bigger services package, like with, you know, with YouTube TV buying what is it? Sunday, uh, NFL ticket, uh, right. They can cross sell a whole bunch of stuff within YouTube TV, not to mention YouTube TV itself is probably kind of break even, but um, there's advertising in there as well. And they're kind of advertising behemoths and it, if you're just a sports streamer, I'm thinking particularly of ESPN or Fubo, I have a hard time imagining you're going to be okay on, on your own.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely agree.
1: Okay. There, there was this fun exercise. Well, actually, let me ask you a question. Do you own, uh, are are you an Amazon prime subscriber? Oh yeah.
0: I have been for a very long time. I have a kid.
1: Yeah. I was going to say with all the benefits that are included there, because I'm like, well, there's no way they're making, maybe they're making money. I don't know. I, I, I don't remember ever seeing them talk about the economics on prime subscriptions, but, um, there's, there's all these kind of loss leaders that they might have in there, but they could just raise prices at will. And I think people would just continue to pay because-
0: I, I don't even know how much I pay for it.
1: Yeah, I and imagine a lot of people are in the same boat. I should,
0: you know, I should know that just as an investor, but I couldn't tell you how much I pay for it.
1: Yeah, I think the free delivery is just such a huge component.
0: <laughs> well, so. now they're doing things like overnight delivery, um, which is smart because it's like helping them leverage their assets better. Like literally they'll deliver something like, 3am really yeah 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 it's, but it's a starbucks that. problem so think about starbucks right? they they sell coffee when people want coffee in the morning right they've always had trouble expanding their day parts amazon their delivery drivers load up in the morning and head out right so there's this throughput issue so it's a way to start expanding throughputs so there these guys are really smart so
1: huh that's something coupon which is one of the e-commerce providers in south korea Yeah, yep. i think there's a couple south korean e-commerce providers that do the same thing Um, they've always done it and you look at the gross margins on their retail business and it's pretty, pretty impressive for an e-commerce for an end to end integrated e-commerce provider. Yeah. I mean, they've got really solid economics and I think you're right, leveraging that same asset base and just, you're just making more frequent use of your fulfillment centers and your trucks and your employees. So, um, okay. I wanted to try this new exercise so i saw this on who was it clark's clark square capital yeah is the one who tweeted it out and it was an interview oh, right. of lee ainsley of maverick capital partners and basically they were talking about this test they do or this exercise they do i didn't see how often they do it but he said basically at the company they'll have everyone every once in a while start with a fresh piece of paper and just say if you were to build your portfolio from scratch today, what would be in it? And then, I'm sure people are aware of what they already own, but if they don't, they pile it together and say, what are the differences here? Why do we still own something that you want to buy today? Why do we not own something that you would buy today? and kind of try to reconcile why why they shouldn't change it. And so I was curious, if you were starting your portfolio from scratch today, is there anything you
0: own now that you would not own? Yeah. So these are talked about the Disney thing is uh, the ESPN thing is kind of a thought exercise. That's interesting. And I think this is interesting too, but you have to be careful about finding something, w- whether it's actionable or not, because I own our taxes Nvidia. included. <laughs> well, right, right. But I, I own some Nvidia that I bought a very long time ago that I've sold some over, over the year, but I'm not selling what I hold. If I owned zero NVIDIA today, I would not buy NVIDIA today. Right. So I think it's one of those things where the conclusion I would not buy it today is not the same thing as if I wouldn't buy it today, why, why do I have it? Right. You know what I mean? So I think that's one of the challenging things, but I do think, you know, it's tough. If I was a hundred percent cash today and I was looking around the market, banks, I think I would still be buying banks. You know, I'm I'm about yeah. 15% banks now. Um
1: yeah. I, I think of, yeah, because it raises a good point. Just because you want to buy it today doesn't mean selling is the right decision. A because taxes are a real repercussion here and you yeah. don't want to have to. Yeah. maybe you don't want to have to incur those and maybe you have to consider too like if you're getting what's the long-term capital gains tax rate these days like
0: 15 percent for most people it's 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 21 22 for the highest earners which is still substantially lower than your short-term your marginal tax rate
1: i guess is the right way to think about it would you still would you be a buyer 15 percent lower
0: yeah yeah
1: and right. Maybe if the answer is no in that scenario, it's worth discarding. I think there's a few, and maybe, maybe I'm sure there's some bias that's uh, that you can label. Maybe this is endowment bias. I don't. But there's companies I own where, if I was watching it from the outside, I would say like, oh gosh, that's just been it's been poorly run. I would not be touching that. But now because I own it and I've owned it while it was poorly run, my first thought is, well. It's, it's a hell of a lot cheaper and maybe they can turn things around. Two of the ones that come to mind are match group for one. Spotify hasn't necessarily been poorly run. It's just been not optimized. They've just been loose with their costs. Yeah, But those are two where if I were looking from the outside, I don't know if I'd be a buyer. And
0: I think you were hitting on something interesting I, there. And, and maybe this is where, when I was initially thinking about this, when we were putting the outline together, it's maybe the way to think about it is, would you buy this business? Do you want to own, not the stock, but the business? Do you want to own this entity? Would you buy this entity today? Yeah, and then you think about, well, okay. Yeah. I, yes. Now does the stock pass all of the reasons I would, Buy or not buy a stock, valuation, you know, all those you know, sorts of things.
1: Yeah, it's maybe a good rule of thumb that if you bought initially for the business first, like you bought because of the business initially, and now you're holding because of the valuation first, maybe it's that's a time to reconsider yeah. your position. Um, you mentioned banks. We actually just did a show on Discover Financial. Have you ever looked at them?
0: A little bit, a little bit. They're, they're interesting, right? So discovers like the, the the poor man's Amex, I guess you'd say. Yeah,
1: and yeah. honestly, that's a great way to describe it. The same business uh,
0: model, just you can't use the card in as many places.
1: Yeah, well, their merchant acceptance in the U.S. is on par, but yeah. internationally, it's not it's there. Um, and then the other thing is they had a bunch of compliance issues lately, so. They kind of um I guess they weren't they were understaffed on their compliance side. And I think the SEC kind of came in and said, Hey, like you need to add some additional staff here. And then they also apparently had been upcharging a bunch of merchants over the last like decade. Mm-hmm. And so the CEO resigned like three weeks ago. They've got an interim CEO in place. Stocks kind of collapsed since, but it does trade at six times earnings, which yeah. I mean, there's a lot of banks that are cheap, but turn it it's, one right of, here. it's one of those where it's like, and I wish I had more data on uh, success investing in banks when there's compliance problems, because I've, right. you've seen it go both ways where they shore up the compliance issues. They earn more in two or three years and all of a sudden you've got great returns or you've seen okay what they've told you on compliance is not the whole story and things get a lot worse i'm thinking like wells fargo solomon brothers probably a whole bunch of banks during the crisis so i don't know it's i came away thinking that if the company does not completely implode within the next two or three years it's going to be a good investment but i was not sure that the company won it well and and you
0: know Discover and and Amex are banks, right? But they're different banks. um, because the way their deposit structure is set up versus most banks and their lending is not not essentially a rounding error from being all unsecured personal loans, right? Credit card debt. And then they like Amex has some business loans and that kind of stuff, but the vast majority of the stuff is unsecured. So it's like the leading edge of like this is the stuff that starts defaulting first when people stop having money and like you read every headline right now. And like all the, 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 the money from the pandemic, all the STEMI monies spent, we're seeing like the highest auto um, and personal loan default rates, like 10 year highs. It's like all that stuff starting to creep in. It's like, if there's a bank, that's kind of scary to own in that time, when those times happen it's the ones that their entire loan loan portfolio is is unsecured debt right
1: yeah and i think with the A- amex at least the cohort of or, or your audience Credit or your quality, cardholders
0: high debt to income high or head high yeah all all the ratios yeah right. they they check them off
1: yeah and so also they're credit card fees, if I'm not mistaken, are a lot higher than a lot of other credit card providers. So if you have carried balances, you're encouraged to pay Amex's off first, because especially if you have multiple cards, because you don't want to be incurring the higher fees. Um, Not to mention people's, I think one of the biggest things is just like egos for Amex card holders. Like they don't want. Oh yeah. Yeah. They want to be perceived as wealthy to put the card down for the check or whatever. Well, and they it, have some great rewards programs
0: too. So it's not even yeah. just the like the, the the ego part of it, right? But but it's it's what they give you, if you especially if you travel a lot and do this, like it's pretty lucrative.
1: Yeah. I would be more I think I'd be more inclined to buy Amex before I bought Discover today. Oh, yeah. yeah. Although yeah. Discover trades at like half of the valuation. If there is any sort of really kind of rough economic environment in the next couple of years, Discover will be in kind of a more difficult spot. We do have a question from Tyler Ferris here. He says, I'm seven minutes behind, but do you guys think the Amazon Disney ESPN deal would be more about transitioning ads and data from generic TV watcher to a more targeted individual ad base? The CPM would go up. I think- Maybe I'm sure that's part of the revenue calculation for them is you're getting higher CPMs, but there's still a lag. There's still a lag from advertisers to switch right now. Um and maybe it's just a different advertiser base, but I think what you're getting is a lot more, I think you still get a lot more brand advertising on cable and more performance marketing on streaming so maybe maybe it's they'll still make the transition but i just think like i think more the more of the thought process from disney here is how do we salvage yeah espn in a world where everyone's pay everyone can pay more than we can for the content
0: yeah this is a have to kind of move i mean and i don't mean like emergency room patients dying on the table have to but it's like Cable is dying, right? You have to do it. So, but part of, I think part of the greater calculus, I'm just going to paraphrase Jeff Green. You know, all advertising is becoming digital. Programmatic ads are the future of all of this kind of stuff. Even for, for these like live TV kind of linear things, 10 years from now, the vast majority of the ads that are served on those platforms are still going to be, are going to start being programmatic. Where they're not is like the big event stuff. The tentpole stuff like the super bowl right the world series you're talking in sports where you, a marketer wants to capture 20 million people 100 million people at one time right and like you said the big brands they're going to buy those those ads but everything like it's definitely part of the calculation at some point whether it's happening now or not it's a different different story
1: Yeah. The other thing that's interesting is a lot of these, I don't think this is appreciated enough, but a lot of these cable companies, the the marketing isn't all self-serve. A lot of it is the cable companies or whoever runs these channels have big sales staffs mm-hmm. or that are going out and trying to get companies, whether it's the chief marketing officer or some vice president of media acquisitions or something like that they're trying to allocate a big budget and they're locked in they'll say we've committed to a year worth of advertising on cbs or whatever it is so there is a lag that's that's gonna happen and there is like an actual real relationship a lot of the time between the advertiser and the the channel they're buying from so i don't think it's going to move over as quick as people might think but maybe that's just uh Maybe I'm wrong on that. Um, We do have another question, but I want to get to some of the stuff you talked about, which is uh, the ratings agencies downgrading the banks. Were there any banks
0: specifically? There there were a ton. I'm I'm just going to kind of leave it there, but we saw a few weeks ago, I think it was Moody's first downgraded like a half a dozen banks, maybe it was 10. And then they put like a half a dozen more on notice that they were basically going to review them. And then they went negative outlook on like 11. And then we saw S&P, I think it was last week, downgraded banks. And these are mostly, these are the mid-sized banks, right? These aren't small regionals. These are not the too big to fails, the SIFI banks, the G-SIFs as they call them. Um, they're the ones kind of in the middle, right? Like the coincidentally, the ones that happen to be Within within orbit size of Silicon Valley Bank, um, First Republic, and um, Signature Bank, right? So, what's happened in the short version, Ryan? And then there's some new news that's happened in the past couple of days that's pretty big, and maybe like the long term implications could be pretty significant. But basically, what the ratings agencies are saying is, look, interest rates have skyrocketed. Most banks rely on real estate debt as a big part of their loan books, right? Almost all of the loans that happened in 2020, 2021, 2022 were fixed rates, right? Most of them are less than 3%. I could log on to one of 20 online banks right now and get 35 or 4% yield on my cash. Yeah. So these banks are seeing pressure from depositors who are either leaving or moving their money into you know, short-term CDs or whatever money markets to try to capture that higher yield. At the same time, these banks have this massive encumbrance of a large portion of their loan book that's less than other banks are paying in deposits, right? So they're, they're, their margins are getting squeezed a ton. And oh, by the way, you've also got a lot of those regional banks. They're the ones that own a lot of commercial real estate. I've been, yeah, I was surprised how many companies just have how many banks
1: that I wouldn't think have real estate exposure really do? So
0: oh, no, yeah, ton especially All- those small and medium sized ones.
1: Yeah. I mean Ally, we own Ally and it's one of the it's one of the leading automotive uh lenders, mm-hmm. mostly right. used cars. But they even they, as a part of their asset book, they've got I think 10% of their assets are just in mortgage-backed securities that yield like three percent. And yeah. they're paying out three and a half percent on their deposits right now. So yeah, I think all those, every company that bought mortgage backed securities is underwater, at least on those.
0: Yeah. On a big portion of their portfolios, right. That's, I mean, that's, that's, it's a tough position to be in. Now, here's the thing that's happened more recently. Um, The, there's basically three, I don't, I'm not going to give the, the acronyms, but I'll give you OCC, Office of the Control of the Currency and the FDIC um, and there's one other, I can't remember their acronym. The, the, these are bankly, the, basically the federal government bank regulators. They regulate essentially every bank in the US. And they propose some new rules that basically would require like a massive cohort of the large banks that have more than $100 billion in assets to take on debt, to, to raise capital, right? So, they, so not the bank loaning money, the bank borrowing money to raise capital to protect against deposit losses in the case of a bank failure, right? So with with the bank failures that we saw the two this spring, um, it cost the FDIC's deposit insurance fund billions of dollars because they used a a systemic uh, threats exception to cover domestic depositors above the insured limits, right? if you remember, but that was kind of a big deal that they did that. Um, they can't do that all the time. They can't, right? They just can't do that all the time. So what they're telling these banks is we're concerned about how well capitalized you are. A big part of it is that interest rate thing where now they have these encumbered loan books that, you know, they have to discount, you know, some of these mortgage-backed securities or loans they own 20 or 30% if they had a, a liquidity crisis, right? If that had a run, right? And, it would be so much that they would, they would be insolvent, right? So the FDIC and the um, OCC is basically saying, okay, you guys are going to have to, if, if you fall beho- below these certain thresholds, you've got two or three years to go get some debt, raise capital with that debt. And then when you fail, there'll be money there that we can use to cover deposits. And the lenders, this is mostly institutional bar- lenders, right? Now they're on the hook, right? So depositors get wiped out. The institutional lenders that that bought the, the, the bonds that they're fund the that hook. extra capital, they would be the ones on the hook in the capital stack. So what's, what's happening is the, 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 the regulators, or regulators are basically saying, okay, we want institutional investors in bank debt to help us hold these banks accountable to having um, strong balance sheets. If you're looking
1: at investing in banks broadly. So let's say you're doing it as like a whole and not doing it company by company. Like that's yeah. not how you're doing your research. What are the characteristics you want for a bank right now? Um, like what kind of loans, what kind of a depositor base?
0: So I, I think first of all, understanding what their, what their loan books look like. Right so deposits are a liability that's money you owe somebody else the assets are the loans that they hold and the cash they have right and understanding the FDIC can give you this information you can get a lot of it in their annual reports some of it in their quarterly filings it's like really trying to figure out how much is in commercial debt how much is in real estate what is the maturity dates on those on those different things and how much is it yielding on average right you look at that and understand and then look on their deposit side. What is the average yield they're paying on deposits? And chances are, if they're paying a really low yield, they're probably going to be in trouble because they're getting squeezed on that end, particularly if they have a lot of that fixed rate debt. So I'm looking at those things really, really closely. And then when it comes to like the depositor side and the loan books, so like I like banks right now that don't have a lot of mortgage exposure. So like Live Oak Bank, just as an example, right? They just do business lending. And they're a variable rate loans, So they're, they're in hog heaven right now. And their depositors are online CD and, and high yield savings, right? So they're paying a higher yield, but their net interest margin is going up because like the, the way the levers affect their business don't affect, um, they're not getting squeezed on the margins like most of these traditional banks are. I don't think, I don't think this is like a big, scary risk sign for banks, but I think if you're looking at any bank and you're like, well, their margins are going to get squeezed and their their returns are going to be lower going forward, okay, that's fine. But if it's a good high quality brand, like a truist, right? It's a really, really good institution, great brand value, they're pretty well run. It's trading for 70% of book value right now. So you're it- being <coughs> you're being compensated for the risk of lower returns.
1: <coughs> I have I have a bit of a working theory that and I don't know if it's really accurate or not um but there's a lot of these I keep thinking that the online banks are well positioned because you know they can offer higher rates they don't have to you know, afford the costs of basically operating all these physical branches and so they're able to pass those cost savings in the form of higher deposit rates and so I, th- I think generally they're on the right side of the innov- innovator's dilemma, but the difficulty or what I worry about is, and I'm saying this as an ally shareholder, the people that move their money to ally solely for the higher rate might be so rate sensitive that they're not locked in like the kind of customers you get at a JP Morgan Chase. they are always reacting
0: to, to keep the deposits.
1: Yeah, I'm worried that – and this last quarter, Ally's rate was a little lower than some of the other ones. Like SoFi had a higher rate, and and they still attracted more deposits. But Mm -hmm. I worry that they kind of just have this huge deposit base of rate chasers, which might make it harder for them to – if they need to bring down what they're offering on savings accounts, they're not going to be able to do that without – Losing a bunch of deposit customers.
0: Yeah, and that's the ones that. Yeah, I think Ally is a good example because a lot of their like their auto loans those are fixed. A lot of them are fixed rate loans, right? Yeah, um, shorter when, maturity, but yeah. Say that again. Shorter duration loans, but right, they're shorter duration, but fixed you know, five. If it's a five year loan, and you and you it's a car you sold in twenty twenty one, right? Your your cost of capital has gone up and you again you you they they basically borrow the money short because they're borrowing it from depositors and then they lend it long right so you're borrowing short and that cost is continuing to go higher right so so your margins are getting squeezed so it's the ones and again i'll use live oak as an example because the vast majority of their loans are adjustable rate right so they adjust up every year so they're and their loans to businesses to small businesses that use them to buy equipment to operate their business right so so their, their interests are in to continue to pay that loan, so they have that thing that generates revenue for them. Um, so even though they're paying more on deposits, they're earning more on, on their loans too, right? So, so they, they ebb and flow together, I guess, is the best way to put it. For an ally, you don't really have that same, that same thing. SoFi, I think is an example of one that's really interesting to me, Ryan, because they're starting to, try to be like a Bank of America or the US Bank or Wells, where they're getting stickier, hmm. adding more financial services. So you maybe you go there for the, maybe you started to get to refinance your, your student loan, right? You haven't done that in the past three years, but maybe you will in October, or maybe you did in 2019. And you're like, well, well they have this online checking account and they're paying 4% interest. Okay, I'm going to get that too. Oh, they have a trading account? Okay, well, I'll, I'll open a brokerage here. They have mortgages? All right, well, I'm shopping for a house. So maybe, maybe I'll, I'll buy a house and finance with them too. So it's the ones that are like, they're trying to thread the needle um, that I think are really, really, I'm 15% bank stocks right now, by the way, my, my portfolio, and almost all of them, I would say probably 12% of that, 10 to 12% of that was, was investments that I made between March and now. Huh.
1: Yeah. I've got, uh, we only own one, like pure bank, Nelmet is a company we own and they have a bank but it's really not a huge part of their business Um, but i've grown more and more interested as of late just which which kind of concerns me because i'm i'm getting more interested in financials when all the people that know financials are leaving so maybe it makes me think i'm i'm the guy on the outside they're just dumping their shares too but um we've got a question here from mr dapper capper says any updated thoughts on evolution a b since you looked at it back in march of 2021 are you familiar with evolution at all it's no so i guess just to be totally honest yeah, they do the The machines like the digital they power the for online gambling they power like the
0: software behind it i guess the the digital picks and shovels for the online casino business yeah i feel like that's all i know that's the extent of my knowledge (laughs) yeah i feel like
1: i'm uh i probably shouldn't talk about it i haven't really followed it that much honestly i thought it was a really good business um because the margins were like 70 percent or something like that like EBITDA margins which was pretty crazy i hadn't seen anything that high i might be even getting some of that stuff wrong but um, no, I haven't followed it. Maybe it's something we'll have to look at again. I I do want to, uh, I want to move to our Mount Rushmore because happy birthday to uncle Warren Turn this week, Turn 93, which is, it's kind of mind blowing. I hope, I hope I'm still puttering around and functioning when I'm get anywhere near that age. Um, but yeah, happy birthday to uncle Warren. So the Mount Rushmore for this week is going to be his top and what we think his some of his best investments were. And you can do this either on a percentage basis if you want, or kind of what is maybe more monumental, what maybe changed his philosophy, what people can have better takeaways on, because I'm sure he had some crazy activist investments in the 60s or something that were really good IRRs. But maybe it's it's harder to take away anything that's actionable from that. So, what are our favorite Warren Buffett investments of all time? Mount Rushmore. Jason, you want to go first here?
0: Yeah, so um, so I'm going to do my my first I'm almost going to have to do two Mount Rushmores. I'm going to do the first one really fast. And this is just these are the big ones, right? If you're going to if you're going to the ones that matter the most, right? If you're going to go that way. And I think you have to start with Apple because even though this is a really recent investment in Berkshire terms, it's the most capital ever deployed and it's the most dollars in gains generated. Right. So in terms of like the actual economic value, there's nothing that's generated the same amount of economic return, especially in this short period of time. So that's gigantic. Right. And then from there, I'm going to, I'm going to go with three whole acquisitions. Um, Wait, Geico. we alternate. What's that?
1: Alternate. Oh, okay. I don't want you to take all mine. Okay. You got, yeah. you got it. All right.
0: All right. Yeah. I don't want to. Yeah. You're right. You're right. I'll take all the good ideas if you let me go first. Okay.
1: Yeah. Geico was on my list too, but I'll I'll let you have that one. No, no, uh, no. Take
0: it. Take it. We can have the same ones. It's okay. I know.
1: I, uh, I want to do this one because I think it's interesting. Buying. So they bought Jen re in 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my favorite part about this is that. I've always thought the hardest part about being a manager of a seat or a manager of a public company is not when things are cheap, because when things are cheap, that's the easiest, that's kind of when it's easiest to allocate capital, right? You can buy back, you can buy back your own stock. You can issue dividends. Your shareholders are happy. But when your stock gets really expensive, it's hard to keep shareholders happy, like because you know what forward, especially for a guy like Buffett, he know what forward returns are probably going to look like. You know that you're a little expensive and you don't want to just go out and say like, no, our, our, our shares are way too expensive right now. And when, because, when
0: shares are high, expectations are higher.
1: <laughs> yeah. Shareholders are going to be upset. And so at the time of the deal, Berkshire, I went back and looked at this on Y charts and Berkshire's price-to-book value was 2.9 times. Its historical average over its whole life has been 1.5 times. So it was trading at double what it's always, always has. And it's the highest book value that's ever priced a book it's ever traded at. And this was the only time I can remember where he bought it with equity. And so, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of other companies that have just used equity to buy other businesses during bubble periods, but to buy more of a sustainable business, to buy something where you're getting more capital, to invest further and using your equity to do it when you've previously been pretty against that, I think was just a really smart way to get your valuation back down without having to just go out and say, yeah, we're we're selling more shares.
0: I, I don't know of, of a single investor out there that's been as mentally flexible as Buffett, right? And a lot of people you know, think this guy that spent years telling us how terrible the, 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 airline industry was. Right. And obviously that didn't work out, but that's not the first time he's talked about something and done something different. Right. He's also told us that when the, when the facts change, you need to change your position. Right. So, um, so that's, that's, I love, I love that. I love that because yeah, he's used stock when he's had to and when his stock was expensive. Yeah. Um, he hates issuing stock. Uh, he doesn't pay dividends, but he loves companies that that do pay dividends, right? Yeah. He told us in the past that you know buying back shares means that I can't find any good ideas. Of course, they've changed that a little bit, but he's always loved companies that bought back share, Coca Cola, as an example. So
1: it's always been interesting to me. Like, and there's been a lot of the people that have gone to the meetings and be like, "Will, you, will you issue a dividend?" That's like, why would you want? Why do you own the shares if you wanted to issue a dividend? Aren't you right. basically you're buying? Structure for his capital allocation skills right. and you want him to give the cash back to you, like it, we're not better
0: investors than him. Let him do it. Yeah. If, if, yeah, if, if you're, if you're better than him, why do you own shares in this company and why are you even here? Yeah. You know? Yeah. All right. What what's agree. your, what's your second one? So I was, I'm going to change this up. I was going to go with Geico. No, I'm still going to go with Geico. All, all right. right? I'm going to go with Geico because this was the first insurance company that Buffett really kind of like, fell in love with. Right. And it was the model of insurance. It was so compelling to him. And Ben Graham introduced that to him through Geico actually in terms of the float. And, you know, it's, it's a business that basically you get perpetual interest-free loans, right. Then you can redeploy um, to earn money. And if you can actually earn money as an insurer, right. Underwriting and then earn money on the float, you know, it's like the, it's the perfect business. Right. So, and then buying Geico, acquiring a full stake of, of the business was incredible. Um, if I didn't go with GEICO, I'd say National Indemnity, because that was actually the very first insurance company that Berkshire acquired. And I think it might have been the first actual um, acquisition of a subsidiary was National Indemnity.
1: Hmm. Okay. I'm going to take – GEICO is up there for me. It, I mean, it kind of shaped or allowed him or gave him the flexibility to invest in a lot of other things. But... Yeah.
0: I'm gonna it's like banking without the risk of a run.
1: Yeah. I, I think the ones I like the best that he's acquired are the ones that are hiding in plain sight, the ones where like Moody's anyone could have bought it. And yeah. it was just the wrong narrative at the time. And so I'm gonna repeat what you said here. Apple, because it's crazy how five years since that investment, everyone says, like, well, yeah, I mean, if Apple was traded at six times, of course I'd buy. But no one was, or what was Nobody it, eight times? It. Yeah, no one was doing it. Everyone was okay. like, "Oh, this is the demise of the iPhone." Like, it, it, it's it's those ones where I'm just he he feels I come away thinking, like, "Gosh, he's so good." Like, yeah. he just lets the narrative pass by and he just sees right through it. But as uh, so I'll take Apple there,
0: John John Rattance's talked about before. He's I helped John write up this research report when he was still at the Motley Fool, um, talking about Buffett's process, and when he came on. Um, the the smattering podcast with me and jeff uh, a few months back he's like you know buffett talks about this you know paying fair prices and all that kind of stuff But like if you go back and look it's like no he still buys like when he makes the big buys it's when stuff is cheap right that's when he does it yeah sure it's great businesses but it's still when stuff is very very cheap so all right for my fourth one i'm gonna go with um burlington well no what i'm not i started to I started to wait. Am I doing my third? Is this my third? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll do I'll do BNSF. I'm gonna say my last one. My then for you, you might get the last one. So BNSF Railways, they owned a pretty large stake in the business for a, lot, a number of years before acquiring the whole thing. And it's now one of the big four, right? Just in terms of the cash that it kicks off, the timing. Part of it was just kind of lucky with the the US oil boom when there wasn't a lot of deployed. Uh, pipelines to where a lot of new oil was being developed and the amount of money they made shipping crude oil around was enormous. But owning one of, what is it, what are there, four, three or four class A railways in the US? I mean, talking about owning irreplaceable assets, it's just such a wonderful, smart move and a business that's going to be you know, just as important in a century as as it was, frankly, a century ago. I, I fully, firmly believe that
1: yeah when i think about businesses that would be pretty much impossible to disrupt maybe there's some huge advancement in trucking but the uh i think railroads are probably one of the biggest ones like good luck good luck building a new railroad yeah um because you probably aren't going to get the permits and you're probably not going to be able to build it capital wise so um yeah that's that was a good one i I've got a couple that I've been thinking of that are all kind of in the same category, which are the hiding in plain sight, obvious, but bad narrative. Um, I think I'll take, I think I'll take Moody's where I think everyone knew Moody's is a pretty good business, but it's been, he's owned it for 23 years and it's been a 34 bagger for him. I mean, he just, it's one of those where it was a decent size for him too. I think it was like 230 million at cost so not that big not as big as amex or coke but um it, the returns have been there and it's it's one of those that everyone already knew was a good business and he just bought it at the right time i've always been blown away by his willingness to wait
0: yeah i mean there's i mean there's no there's it's the the discipline and the patience i guess when you when you when you live to be 93 you've you've proven your ability to wait a long time for things
1: there's a yeah i read something that there are companies where he's like yeah i'd love to own it and i read the annual report every single year for like 30 or 40 years and i never owned it and then the right price comes along and he owns it and it's like he has a longer he's probably the most patient investor of anyone i could think of out there
0: yeah just he's seen he's seen it all it yeah. really has all right you got one more i do mid-american energy it's not called Mid American Energy anymore. It's not called Berkshire Hathaway Energy because of other acquisitions that have happened along the way. It's become one of those pillar cornerstone businesses in terms of the profits that it generates. But here's the thing that's so powerful, Ryan. If you own a utility business, whether you're owning shares of a publicly traded one or it's a subsidiary of your business, you're doing it because it kicks off the cash flow. And then you take that as a dividend and you can do other stuff with it. They've never taken a dividend from Mid-American energy. They give it back. They let Mid-American keep it. And they're in the middle of this like 22 year long capital project to build transmission to connect the middle of the country. They call it the Saudi Arabia of wind to the coasts to continue to deploy more and more wind and now solar. It's pretty interesting what they are done. But here's the actual reason why I'm putting it on there. Do you know um, who was the president of Mid American Energy when when it was acquired? Oh, what's his name? Right? Uh, yeah, he has a name. No, oh, um, the the, the um, name the Apprentice. The name that's right. The Apprentice. The named replacement as CEO, Greg Abel. Yeah, Greg yeah Abel I came of... to Berkshire because it acquired Mid American Energy, and I think that's really, really important. You know. Yeah. So. Wasn't
1: there something, I think someone asked him, like, what were your best investments?" And he just said, like, it was at one of his one of the meetings and he said, like, uh, buying or, or uh, acquiring, what's his name, the, uh, the insurance oh, guy?
0: Uh, Aji Jane. Aji. Yeah. yeah he's oh, like, yeah, no, they getting, getting him was here. the best investment we' made. Yeah. yeah. well, and the funny thing is like when, the, when he hired Jane, he had no experience in the insurance business.
1: That's- yeah, that's right. It was just, yeah. yep. I think it was recommended through a consulting group or something like that. But um, anyways, uh, I think that's all I'd say maybe my fourth one, I'd take like Amex or Coke. I really like those hiding and Plain Sight ones. And it's, those are the ones too, where it's like, it feels very actionable for people, the individual investor that follow, follows them to just find businesses you think are really high quality and when the narrative for a short time goes against it that's usually an opportunity to buy and it's uh as opposed to buying like a full on the an entire energy subsidiary or a giant entire insurer it's it's really hard to do that we've got 4 minutes i want to do let's see here i want to i want to ask some questions to you some discussion questions first of all i guess when did you start investing and
0: how do you think you've changed over the years? So it really like focused on actively picking individual stocks, 2008, 2009, right around there, pretty decent time to get, to yeah. get started um, picking stocks. And it was simply just a matter of, I was fortunate to be in a job in the financial crisis when you know I was earning a lot of money um, and- needed something to do with it to generate growth realized I was way behind in my savings and, and retirement goals. Um, so that worked out really well. Um, I already kind of had the long-term bent, right? That was already there, but I spent years kind of flailing around, like trying to figure out what kind of investor I was, you know, I end up owning 60 or 70 stocks. I'm like, that's just way too many. And then I sell half the portfolio and be like, okay, I'm just going to, and then a year later it'd be like, "Okay, I own 45 stocks in and I try to get, And then I just started to embrace like who I am. Like I like to own small amounts of companies to start, and then as my conviction grows as the business earn it, throw more money at them, right and grow those positions over time. Um, I've also learned that I need, I need to keep a certain amount of cash so I don't meddle with a good thing, because um, there's nothing worse than me selling a big winner, selling half of it to raise some cash to go do something else with and talking myself into doing it because oh it's gotten too big it's like it's four percent of your portfolio dummy just leave it alone you know it's going to be five times bigger in 20 years so now i keep cash like i keep five percent not starting to grow to go to higher percentages as i get older but it's like those are a couple things that i've learned it's like i've embraced the fact that i'm fine owning lots of stocks and i need money to keep me screwing with the rest of my portfolio what about you
1: yeah i started Buying individual stocks in college. So like 20, 2018, 2019. Um and I think I've kind of gone through we started the fund at sort of a crappy time and ended up being sort of basically the top of the bubble. We were planning to start it earlier, but there's a lot of friction involved with actually getting that kind of stuff off the ground. And um it went from us I think having that bubble burst right at the start as shit as it was has really kind of helped shape my view of markets Mm -hmm. and realizing what cheap actually means because there were times when it's like I just felt like I had to do something because the stock was down that I owned and now like you said just letting things sit and actually like really reducing the amount of action you take I've kind of Taking that to heart a little more. I'd say I'm I'm less tolerant of red flags than I have been previously. And the longer I've been investing, the more I care about just who runs the like there's a there's a couple companies where it's like I don't care who runs it because I think it's just such a good business and the manager is doing fine. But really, who runs the company? What do they do with the capital at their disposal? And do I think they're high integrity and smart? And if they really don't check those boxes, it's it's really hard for me to own it. And I, like the longer I've been investing, the more I've thought that's where uh, my biggest mistakes were, where people that were, I, th- I thought it was an innovative business, but the manager isn't really focused on the minority shareholders as much. So it's probably where I've lost the most. and. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's just the uh the the bear market I guess over the last 2 years talking to me, but the uh I yeah, I, I'd say I've gone more that side of things, less tolerant of bad managers. Yeah. I like that. All right, we've got uh, let's give it one more minute. I want to ask one more question. Worst investment you've ever made. Do you know what it is?
0: Yeah, um I'm going to say I've had other stocks that have fallen more, which is pretty bad when your stock is down to 81%, but I'm going to go with clean energy fuels specifically when I bought the first time. It was March, 2012. So that's 14 ah. years ago now, or 13 years ago now, 13 and a half years ago.
1: What was the, uh, what was the idea initially?
0: So it's, it's, an, it's an idea that I think is still there and it's a totally viable business, but natural gas for transportation is cleaner than diesel. Domestically available, some of that's kind of changed. Just a ton cleaner, and now it's become renewable natural gas. So it's like from landfills and dairy farms and that kind of stuff. So like green initiative, it actually makes sense. The economics are pretty decent. Technology is there for it. the The problem, Ryan, is it has just been a value destroying business. And Andrew Little, I know the CEO, nice guy, super nice guy. Boone Pickens, one of the co founders. I met Boone because of following the company. Here's the thing. So it's down eighty one percent. S&P is up fourfold since then. Yeah. Right. So that's a five fold loss opportunity cost, right. Over a very long period of time, a dozen years, you know, so that's it.
1: It's yeah. It's you really don't notice the opportunity cost until you look back after a couple of years and you're like, Oh crap. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The uh, all right. Well, it's been an hour, so I think that's going to do it. I, there's one comment in the chat that just said one of them, one of the best Buffett picks has to be Apple. Yes, totally agree. I think Jason and I both agreed on that one. Um, that is going to do it, though. If you want to hear more of Jason or uh, our friend Jeff Santoro, the co-host of The Smattering, go ahead. Check out The Smattering podcast wherever you get them. Or if you want to hear more of us, obviously, you can go to the Chit Chat Money feed and uh, check out all the other shows there. Jason, thanks for doing this thanks for having me um, it was fun yeah i'm gonna throw a disclosure on this before we go uh i'm not a financial advisor jason are you a financial advisor Heck no <laughs> jason's not a financial advisor anything we say or discuss here on chit chat money is not formal advice or recommendation uh, i am however a general partner at arch capital so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast thank you all for tuning in thank you for all the good questions in the chat